fantastic. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we begin. Gracious God, we thank you for your words. Thank you for all that you've revealed of yourself already in the book of Exodus. And we ask that you would again please speak to us and reveal yourself to us. And as we pray most weeks, Father, please would we see of you also change our hearts and our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Given the chance, ooh, there I am. Given the chance, I would basically watch any sporting contest. Anything. Tiddlywinks, if that made it to the Olympics, I'll be there. I'll be up for that. I, I, I love sports. I, I love competition. I love seeing two sides struggling it out for supremacy. But me or anyone, really, you know, if a sporting contest pops up on TV, what, what's the first thing you do? Well, you look to see who's playing. Who are the teams? Who's engaged in this struggle? And I think one of the reasons why the book of Exodus connects so clearly and wonderfully to us is that it is this contest, this struggle. The question is, who is this contest between? Who is in the struggle? So, in one sense, you might initially think, okay, this is a struggle between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But not really. I mean, they're, they're mentioned as the parties and they're involved, but not really. Perhaps more likely you might think, okay, well, it's a contest between Moses and Pharaoh. After all, and Moses is the main spokesman and here they are going at it. He's often the one there. But again, no, not, not really. Maybe we think, well, it's between the Lord, it's between God and Pharaoh. And here we're probably more onto something. But ultimately, the, the, the book, the contest, is between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. This is going to come much more plain when we get to the plagues. And we see the ten plagues that God brings upon the Egyptians. But this is the question of the book as well. Who has the supremacy? Is it the gods of Egypt? Is it the god of the Nile and of the sun and of the moon and of the, all the million other things? Or is it the one true god? That, that's, that's where the struggle is. That's the top level. Now, of course, all those others are involved in it too. You know, Pharaoh considered himself and was considered by others as a god. Moses, Aaron, the people very much involved in this struggle. But the book of Exodus is this, this contest. And it's between the Lord and the gods of Egypt. Ultimately, but also these others involved. And, and the chapter that we're looking at today really starts to dig deep into the participants in this contest. So who is the Lord up against? Who is the Lord up against in this struggle? But as I say, ultimately, the gods of Egypt. We'll get to that mainly in the plagues. But first up today, well, let's see who he's up against. He's up against stubborn Pharaoh. So Moses, he has gone back to Egypt. And it started well. If you look down at the end of chapter 4, we saw that Moses gathered the elders of Israel together. He did the signs and he told them that God had spoken to him and that God was going to deliver the people. And they believed. 
And it ends, verse 31, with them bowing down their heads and worshipping God. And then chapter 5 begins with our, our first confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. So have a look at verse 1. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response, But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Go. So Moses follows it up, verse 3. Then they, that's Moses and Aaron, said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, just briefly, what is it with this three day thing? We've seen it before. Some people think it's a three-day journey, so three days there, three days back, maybe down the middle of a week. Some people take it just as this three-day expedition. And again, is it a three-day thing, or doesn't God want to bring the people out fully? Well, I think the best explanation is this is the opening gambit. This is God testing Pharaoh. Let's start with three days. Let's have this three days where you let my people go and worship me. Who's the God of the universe? Is it Yahweh, the Lord, or is it Pharaoh? Pharaoh, will you give me Yahweh three days? Pharaoh says no. Verse 4, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your burdens. The key verse probably in this whole chapter is verse 2, where Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's the question, isn't it? It's the question that's already started to have been answered. God is the Lord. He is Yahweh, committed in covenant to his people and faithful to them. He is I am who I am. He is the transcendent, independent God of everything. But this question actually shapes the next ten chapters of the book. God answers this question in the most remarkable ways over the next ten chapters. At the end of ten chapters, Pharaoh is going to know well who the Lord is. By the time the Israelites leave Egypt, he will, have an un, he will unmistakably have encountered the one true God. But now, in verse 2, even today, right, we can hear the sneer in his voice. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? One, one writer highlighted Um, that this contempt is is based partly on ignorance and partly on indifference. Ignorance. Who is this Yahweh? Who is this God or this puny nation who are my servants? I don't know him. But it's also indifference. It, It wasn't that Pharaoh didn't have the opportunity to know who this God is. He has the opportunity right here and now. 
simply has no interest in knowing who the Lord is. You can kind of picture him, can't you? Arms folded on his throne. Yahweh? Not interested. Don't care. Don't know him. Don't care about him. Get back to work. The, the, the ignorance and the indifference go hand in hand. And the, the most, if you think about it, the most indifferent people towards God are often those most ignorant to him. If you just think about that, what, what do I mean by that? Just think for a second about um, your, your non-Christian friends and family. Perhaps you yourself if you're not a Christian. I imagine, though, that the people you're thinking of, I imagine the majority, not all, but the majority in our country today would, would, you'd sum up as indifferent. You know, they, they say things like, you're a Christian, you believe in God, you believe in Jesus, great, that's brilliant for you. Just, I don't care. Nothing to do with me. They're, they're indifferent. Now, how much do those people know about God? I imagine very little. They're rejecting a God that they don't really know about. But when people get to know God, the Lord, the one true God of the Bible, the great I am, Yahweh, something will happen. Now, knowing God does not always result in love. Often it's the opposite. Just just think of the Gospels. Think of Jesus when he came. In fact, the more particularly the religious leaders got to see of him, got to know him, the more they hated him. The more they hated him to the extent that they crucified him. They hated him so much they put him to death. But knowing God is going to move people from indifference in one direction or the other. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're here because somebody's dragged you here, well, maybe you've come because you know that it's going to make the person you've come with happy and you love them and so you want to do that. But can I suggest that perhaps the reason why you disregard God is because you don't actually really know him. You know, people get bored in church. Sermons can be boring. I'm allowed to say that. I'm the one preaching. Yeah? You're allowed to say that too. Sermons can be boring. God is not boring. God is not boring. I'm really glad that you're here and do keep coming. And you come at a great time, actually, through this series to get to know God. And I'd encourage you to read one of the Gospels as you see God has come to make himself known in Jesus. But actually, often people's indifference comes because of ignorance about who he is. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says? Maybe ignorance, it may be indifference, but you know what? It is definitely defiance. It is definitely disobedience. You see what he says there again in verse 2? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Why should I listen to him? See, this is a moral thing. This is defiance. This is disobedience. He won't even give God those three days of glory. No way. I don't know who the Lord is. I don't have to listen to him. And so, in the light of this request, the people are told to get back to work, but of course it's made worse. Just glance down at verse 7. 
You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they have made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer a sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Pharaoh takes out his frustrations and his unbelief on God's people. And the rest of the chapter really repeats this again and again. Maybe you noticed it as Poi read, this repetition. Go and make bricks, go and make bricks with no straw, with no straw. No reduction. Verse 10 and 12, the people are told, verse 13 and 14, when they are unable to meet their quota, they are beaten And then when they come to complain to God, or representatives come to complain to Pharaoh, it's called to Pharaoh, have a look at verse 17. But he, this is Pharaoh responding, Pharaoh says, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work, no straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. Pharaoh's indifference, his ignorance about God, his indifference to God is ultimately disobedience to God. And he takes that out on God's people. He he makes their labour far, far worse even than it was before. Now if we were to go out onto the streets of Barnet and we were just to stop people and say, do you believe in God? Uh, And just all the people who say no to that, that question... If the follow-up question is, well, why don't you believe in God? What are some of the things we'd expect to hear? I expect we'd hear things like, well, suffering. You know, there's a loving God, then there wouldn't be so much suffering in the world. Maybe someone would say, well, he's not shown himself to me. You know, if he came and stood here, then I'd believe in him. Maybe people would say, look, I had a bad experience at church. Maybe you see, our science has disproved God. You can't trust the Bible. We'd hear all kinds of things. I reckon probably one that we wouldn't hear, but it is actually the most common. In fact, I would go so far as to say is universal. It's people saying, I don't believe in this God because I don't want to listen to him. I don't believe in God because I don't want to listen to him. This underlies and underpins all of those other reasons, which may be genuinely held. But deep down, at its core, people say, well, who is this God to have any claim on my life? Pharaoh and his cruel oppression is an example of that unbelief, that moral unbelief. He doesn't want to know the Lord. But more than that is, as we think in the the big picture, Pharaoh and his cruel oppression is a striking example of people's bondage to sin. We said before that this exodus rescue is actually a picture of the greater rescue that the Lord Jesus brings. And while Pharaoh and his cruel oppression here is is a picture of that cruel oppression of, of, of the bondage to sin that every single human being is born into. Now, when someone is in bondage to sin, when they think, well, look, to, to trade this master to, to having God as a master will actually make me less free. Commonly hear people say that. That's just a lie of the devil. 
Here we can understand why Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Sin is the cruel oppressor, the brutal taskmaster. Jesus, in following him, is the light load. Who is the Lord up against in his rescue plan? Well, he's up against Pharaoh and his unbelief. You'll remember, though, that we've seen before that the Lord had determined to use Moses in this saving work. And you'll also remember, if you're here a couple of weeks ago, that Moses wasn't too keen on this. And it is fair to say, isn't it, that this first audience with Pharaoh hasn't gone well. But secondly, we see here that who's got up against, as it were, in this rescue plan? Well, he's up against forgetful Moses. I've called him forgetful. That's probably being a bit kind. He really does make a bit of a mess of it. Well, how, how so? Uh, so just bear in mind, though, what we read here uh, is, are summaries. Okay? This, this isn't just the, the whole transcript. This isn't a transcript thing. They are summaries. And that being said, what is, what is recorded for us is importance. And the choice of words and how things and why things are recorded are done for a reason. I don't know if Russ could, sorry, my phone stopped. Can I have the next slide? The slide's still working. Nope. Never mind. All right, we have to do the old-fashioned way. Okay? Keep your finger there and then turn. Oh, you don't have to turn back a page. Have a look down at 318. Okay, so what we're going to do is very simple compare and contrast between three. Oh, there we go. Just so I made you do it. Here it is, 318.51. What is Moses told to do and say? Well, in chapter 3, verse 18, he, he is told to take the elders of the Israel and go to the king of Egypt. Chapter 5, verse 1, who goes? It's Moses and Aaron. Okay, Moses is told to go and say, the God of the Hebrews. What does, God say, what does Moses say in verse 1? Verse one? The God of Israel. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, he's told to go and say, look, God has met with us which um, I'm reliably told in those days would have been this um, uh, theophany. You know, God has appeared to us. This is something you take notice to. He fails to mention that. Uh, and then finally, he's told look, to say, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God. What does Moses say? Let the people go that we may have a festival. See, so he, he goes with the wrong delegation, with the wrong description of God's, he neglects to mention the fact that God has met with them and there's no reference to a time frame. I think what we meant to see here in verse 1 is, is Moses is being confrontational here. Also note, he doesn't perform the signs that he'd been given that he was also told to do. Now, am I being harsh? Maybe one of you think, hang on a second, I mean, a few words different here. Am I being harsh? I don't think so. Because, have a look down to verse 3. Keep in mind what we've just seen there. Then they said, second time round, Moses and Aaron say this, second time round, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice. I think what we see here is actually, well, the first time Moses is going, hey, let my people go. This is what God says. Doesn't work. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should go back and actually say what God said. And actually, we know, don't we, that Moses has a quick 
sorry, has a history of quickly forgetting what God has said. I think here is another example of that happening. Now, who is the Lord up against? Well, he's also got to overcome his servant's forgetfulness or disobedience or his servant who thinks they know better. And he will. God will overcome that. And I find that great comfort. Who is the Lord? He's the Lord who can overcome his servant's weaknesses and failings and pride and forgetfulness. I find that hugely comforting. Do you ever, after some kind of gospel work, kind of feel a bit discouraged, downhearted? You know, maybe you totally messed up this brilliant gospel conversation opportunity or you've just taught an incomprehensible junior church lesson, you're like, they didn't get a word of that. Or you've bottled a difficult but important conversation with someone on your connect table, messed it up again. Well, don't despair. Remember the Bible, the, the whole catalogue of failures of God's servants right throughout, and yet how none of them can start God's rescue plans. You know, think Abraham, the great man of faith, except when he didn't. He wasn't, when he didn't have faith. Jacob, that trickster, that liar, that cheat. Moses, we've seen enough of him already to know he's getting, going, all off the, going all over the place. David, fails hugely. And every single one, they all get it wrong, and yet God still works out his purposes. That's a great comfort. They all get it wrong, of course, except... The Lord Jesus, who never got it wrong, who fulfilled the salvation plan perfectly. And we look to him. And then finally, if I grab the next next slide up, well, who is, who is the Lord and who is he up against? Well, he's also up against the faithless people. And, and here I include Moses very much with the people, but here we see their lack of faith. Just again, have a look down uh, um, at chapter 4, verse 31. So uh, Aaron, Moses and Aaron had spoken to the people. They'd done the signs. Verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their reflection, they bowed their heads and worshipped. They believed. Again, as I read this week, so helpfully, a faith that hasn't been tested isn't really a faith at all. Because as soon as their confidence, their trust in God is put to the test, it, it crumbles. So after the, the delegation from the people, they had their audience with Pharaoh. Um, and they said, look, this is unfair, Pharaoh. And he said, yes, I know. Get back to work. Well, they meet with Moses and Aaron who'd been waiting for them. And have a look at chapter 5, verse 21. This is the, um, the, the, the foreman of the people, that's representative of the people. They say to Moses, in verse 21, the Lord look on you and judge, you, judge, because you have made us a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Oh dear. That's the people's response. 
It's not just the people, it's Moses 2. Read on verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. I told you, Lord. I told you I wasn't the right person for this. I told you five times. I tried to get out of it five times. And you sent me anyway. I told you. And you said you were going to do this great deliverance. You are going to bring us out from slavery in Egypt. And you are going to bring us into the promised land. And you haven't delivered your people at all. In fact, it's got worse. We can understand, can't we? But again, what has God said was going to happen? What's God said is going to happen? Well, come back again to chapter 3 and verse 18. What has God said is going to happen? Verse 18, chapter 3, 18, and they, that's the elders of the people, will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of the Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. He's been warned it is not going to be straightforward or easy. What's it going to take? Verse 20, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. You know, things are going according to God's plan. He'd said this was going to happen, and yet Moses and the people... Forgotten, faithless, at the first sign of trouble, their faith seems to crumble. Who is the Lord? Who's he up against? Well, he's up against the unbelief of his people. But, but who is the Lord? Whatever, oh, there it is there. Because, of course, later editors have put in our chapter divisions, but chapter 6 is part of the same conversation Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. Just as God had promised, just as God had said, he will deliver his people. And in fact, Pharaoh is going to be so desperate to get rid of them, he's going to drive them out. But before that, God is going to need to perform his wonders. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Well, he's the one who can deal with all opposition to his rescue plans. He's the one who can deal with all opposition to his rescue plans. He can do... Deal with those who are opposed and against him, who will do all they can to get in his way and block it. He will overcome them. He will overcome the weakness and the failings and the faithlessness of his own people and his own servants who are going to bring this about. The Lord will overcome those things. The Lord is the one whose plans will not be thwarted. 
He's the one who will surely deliver his people in all his might and strength. Let's pray to that Lord now. O oh Lord, we praise you for your might and your wonders and your, your, your glory and your strength. We praise you that there is nothing in this world that can oppose, oppose you and win and triumph over you. Thank you that you will overcome all obstacles, all barriers to bringing about your res- rescue plans and purposes. And we praise you that you are the same God today. Please, Father, would we trust you and know you in these these times of struggle and, and difficulties. In Jesus' name, amen.